Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 and verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, all these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Acheldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two men you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would illumine our hearts this morning, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. I pray that you would cause our ears to, to hear you, and that you would speak clearly through your word to us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. So 
So we are going to start a study through the book of Acts. And I won't explain all of my thinking as to why I landed on the book of Acts, but I hope this will be helpful to us as we start ministering together. And so we'll do something that I'm not necessarily accustomed to, and that is going quickly through the book of Acts, a chapter at a time. At least that's my commitment. We'll see how long I can keep up with this because it does force us to move quickly. But my hope is that we get the big picture. My hope is that we see uh, the theme of what is happening in Acts and that this not only encourages us in our faith and instructs us in our thinking, but also challenges us as to what the Lord has in store for Christ the King. The first chapter of Acts is really a prologue. It tells us some of the backstory. Luke is weaving things together for us from his gospel, the Gospel of Luke, which he also wrote, into this, and really all of the gospels into the story uh, of the church. And so that's what we see in the first chapter of the book of Acts. When I was young, uh, we read in school C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Well, we didn't read The Chronicles of Narnia. We, we really only read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that was the only story from the Chronicles of Narnia I ever kind of read because I wasn't much of a reader, uh, but I did see the cartoon version. And so I knew the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It wasn't until Micah was old enough that I ever decided to read the whole Chronicles of Narnia. And we read those together every night before he went to bed. And we started with the first book. There's a first book. I always thought the first book was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but there's The Magician's Nephew. And if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, and you see all of this beautiful imagery, this gospel imagery, particularly in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's some of the pieces of the story that don't really fit together until you read The Magician's Nephew. It's the prologue. It's what gives you the backstory. It's what helps you understand put all, and put all of those pieces together. And so that's what this first chapter of Acts will hopefully uh, do for us. But I want us to focus in on one particular theme uh, as we look through the entire book, but particularly this morning, and that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a theme that was a, a central theme of, of, of Christ's teaching while he was on earth, and it's a theme that continues in the early church and should continue for us today. So hopefully we see that, but the kingdom of God. Now, Acts was written by Luke, as we've said. Luke was a physician. He was a Gentile. Uh, he was not one of the disciples, he was uh, probably not even one of the early witnesses. We don't have a record of when he came to faith or when he entered the scene until later, but he was an educated man, and so he did his homework. He did his research, uh, both in the, the Gospel of Luke, putting together this uh, really Gospel for Gentiles, but also uh, in the book of Acts. Interestingly, a lot of scholars think that he played a more significant role than we might think in the unfolding work of the early church. Uh, there are uses of the first person plural uh, pronoun, or uh, first person plural uh, in, in the book of Acts, where he switches from you know third person talking about they went here and they went there to we went here and we went there, and so it's uh, scholars use that to kind of identify when Paul uh, or when Luke traveled with Paul in the early church. So he was a witness to many of the things that happened in the early church. And by looking at the timing of when those things fell together, these we passages, um, it's clear that he spent a long time in Philippi. And so probably served in some kind of role like an elder, teaching and instructing the early believers, the young believers there 
early on at the church in Philippi. He traveled with Paul voluntarily. This was not, Paul did not travel um, first-class accommodations, particularly when he was under Roman guard, as you might imagine. He was a prisoner. And so Luke, in essence, volunteered to be a prisoner with Paul and travel with him. Luke was a humble man. He didn't write about himself. He doesn't even say, I'm the author. We have to look back and put those pieces together. Uh, This was his second volume, as I mentioned, and he connects that here in the first verse, saying that this is a continuing story. The story continues. It doesn't end with Jesus' ascension, but it continues on. And this is what we see, this theme of the kingdom of God running through the Gospels and Acts. The timing is also important as we look to what was happening in the world. Uh, God, in his providence, um, makes no mistakes. And there there were things that were occurring in the world at this time that were very helpful in moving the gospel forward. Uh, Before Rome ruled, as bad as that was for some who weren't Romans, uh, there was still a lot of conflict and war in the world. And so in a sense, for the everyday guy and gal, the peace that came from Roman rule was actually a blessing. People just wanted to go on with their everyday lives, and Roman rule allowed that. Although Latin was the official language of Rome, most people spoke Greek. And Greek was in a unique position to um, be the language in which the New Testament was written. So it wasn't the language of the dominant culture. It wasn't Latin, but it was a a language of a subject people. So the overtones of imperialism that are sometimes associated uh, with English, as we, if you if you travel, you can see that sometimes these things were removed. The Roman Empire had also developed an incredible system of roads through the ancient world by which people could travel quickly and without fear of piracy and high customs fees. It was relatively fast and relatively safe. And so knowing that God in his providence orchestrated the timing of all of this, we can see that how quickly then the gospel message went out and how quickly also Uh, the church grew. So language, culture, earthly kingdoms and rulers, even technological advances, all were sovereignly orchestrated by God for the birth of the church. And we talk about the birth of the church because it is, in essence, born here in, in, in the book of Acts. But we have to remember it's not a new idea. It's a continuing story. It's a new word for the people of God, but the people of God are not a new entity. Uh, This is a story that goes back all the way to Adam and Eve, and in particular, all the way back to Abraham when God called him out. So it's a continuing story, and that the people of God have always been marked by one element, and that is salvation by faith alone. So this leads us to our first point as we look at the first five verses of the chapter, and that is the kingdom of God is a unified kingdom. The kingdom of God is a unified kingdom. Now, in verse 1, we see who he's addressed the book to, Theophilus. We mentioned that Luke was a Gentile. Theophilus was also a Gentile. Again, we don't know a lot about him other than that he was a man of some means and probably some prestige because when he uh, mentions him in his gospel, he, said, he calls him, oh, oh, excellent Theophilus. So this is usually a sign of someone in honor. Uh, he may have been the means by which the book was funded, the research and so forth. Uh, so most excellent Theophilus is the one to whom both the gospel of Luke and this story of the early church was written. There's a gospel connection we see. If you look, Luke writes, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, Referring back to his gospel. 
So he said, I've already dealt with that, but notice his language. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So this was just the beginning. Uh, When Jesus ascended into heaven, things had only just begun. He uses the word all not in an exhaustive sense, but more in a comprehensive sense to say that uh, everything uh, that Jesus did was not written down. I mean, John had something to say about that in John 21, 25, where he says, now there were also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So it wasn't an exhaustive sense of everything that Jesus did, but more like uh, the way that we use uh, when we say we teach the whole counsel of God. We, we teach all that is represented in the scriptures about who God is and what he has done. And so the Gospels contain uh, all this that Jesus began to do and teach. We already highlighted the idea that, that it was what Jesus had begun, that this was a work that was continuing, that Jesus is now entrusting to the apostles and to the church, a work that will continue and is continuing today, a work that we've been entrusted with through the Great Commission to be witnesses for Christ's kingdom. Um, one of the things that is unique, though, in what Christ, had, Christ did, and one of the things that changed everything in terms of, of how people related to God, rather than through the tabernacle and through the temple and through the earthly priestly system, was that Jesus was the ultimate perfect sacrifice, and so those things were done away with. But he also fulfilled the law. So now the righteous requirement of the law that no man could fulfill had now been fulfilled. So not only, as we looked this morning uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the confession, um, that our sins are paid for, but now we're also credited with the righteousness of God in that Jesus has fulfilled the law. So the idea of the kingdom being unified is this. There's always been one God, immutable and unchanging. There's always been one people of God, his by choice, through faith. And there have always, only always been one way of salvation, and that is by faith alone. And we see this all the way back in the garden when God made the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. It was pointing forward to Christ coming as our Redeemer. And by faith, looking forward, God's people were called to trust that he would do that very thing. So he, Luke says, all that he began and then to do and to teach. This phrase here uh, demonstrates that the gospel is, is not just word, but it's also deed. Jesus didn't come just preaching, but he also came ministering. He came serving. Uh, when he announced his ministry in the beginning of Luke, quoting that passage from Isaiah, it was a ministry that would be demonstrable, that could be seen. And so when I think of that in terms of our own lives and our own ministry, the ministry that God has given you, and and if you don't realize God's given you a ministry, hear me today that if you are a believer, if you're a child of God, he has given you his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives you gifts to be used. And those gifts are going to look different from the person sitting next to you. But the gifts are to be used for God's glory And he has given you these gifts that you can exercise and minister to and bless others. But one of the things that we ought to ask ourselves when we look at how we flesh our gifts out is, do they look like Jesus' ministry? All that he did and taught. I think that's a fair question, that there is both word and deed. James says not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we hearers only or are we also doers? Our ministry should look like Jesus' ministry and that all he began to do and teach should also be an example for all that we do and teach. 
So this is it. The gospel is the unfolding good news of the kingdom of God that is to be proclaimed and lived out by the people of Jesus, the church. This is the good news. This is the message of the kingdom. Verse 2, we see this handoff begin now to the apostles. We know at this point that there's only 11. Judas is gone. Uh, We'll come back to that in a minute. But the group of followers of Jesus is now bigger than just 12, right? It's expanded. And and in verse 15, we see that it's up to 120 people. Uh, Men and women who have gathered together, they're now post-crucifixion, post-resurrection during this time, uh, coming together. And what are they doing? They're devoting themselves to prayer. So they are already beginning to see that this is not a mission that's been given for them to do on their own, in their own power, but they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 3, we see this proof of the resurrection, and this is, of course, important. The resurrection is significant on many levels, uh, conquering sin and death, overcoming the grave, the death blow to Satan, but it's also the crowning hallmark of the kingdom is the resurrection. And of course, this is something that gives us great hope when we live in life, this world, because we're always longing for things to be the way they ought to be. We're looking forward to that day of the resurrection. Uh, Remember to the Jews, the idea of the kingdom of God was an earthly kingdom. That's what they were looking for. And the disciples, even at this point, after all that Jesus taught them, after all the correction and all the instruction he provided, they still, right here before his ascension, ask him, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom? Right? They were looking through earthly eyes. And I think if we're honest, if if we were going to be honest with each other, with ourselves, we would admit this is what we want too, right? We want to be the rulers, or we at least want rulers who pass laws that please us or make our lives easier. Right? We want God's kingdom in power now, but we always want it in this selfish sense. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're, you're thinking way too small. The kingdom of God is so much bigger. It's not, it's not an earthly kingdom. So the resurrection points us to the fact that this hope of paradise won't be found in this life. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, there's nothing that reminds us more of this than our own bodies. You know, the hope that we long for, we're reminded each and every day. If, if we didn't watch the news, if we didn't hear of the tragedies, if we didn't see the brokenness beyond our front door, we are still living in these bodies. And these bodies remind us, don't they, every day that we long for something to be right. This isn't the way we were made to be. We know that. And we long for resurrection bodies, for everything to be as it should be, free from sin, from the effects of sin. Now, for the sake of time, we need to move on. But I want to make one other point in in verse 3, that Luke is very uh, specific in talking about Jesus' resurrection, that it was both literal and bodily. Luke writes, by many proofs, he wants his, his readers to have no doubt that Jesus literally and bodily was resurrected from the dead. Okay, in verses 4 and 5 then, we see the power of the Holy Spirit's to come. And this is a foreshadowing of Pentecost, which is coming now at this point in the story, 10 days. So the ascension of Christ, 10 days after that comes Pentecost. And they are going to experience the Holy Spirit in a new way that uh, was was not the norm among the people of God. And we'll look more of that uh, as we get to it. Now, the ascension here that's described is one of those key themes in Acts that we see um, mentioned over and over. Uh, And it's one of the reasons uh, why the Holy Spirit came. This is important. You know, if I were honest, and I'm, I'm guessing 
that most of us probably think this way, if we were given a choice to have Jesus bodily, physically next to us, or the Holy Spirit living in us, we would choose the former. At least, I would. (laughs) I think that's better. That sounds better to me. But that's not what Jesus said. He said in John, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You and I have an advantage in that the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, lives within us. Do we believe that? Do we acknowledge that? Do we hold on to that? I think for most of us, we doubt that because we still see the effects of the sin. This is where we have to take our thoughts captive and remind us of this truth, that the very Spirit of God lives within us. And then there's this order not to leave Jerusalem. I only want to mention here that this was probably a difficult order to follow. If you think about what the disciples had witnessed in the crucifixion, I'm guessing their desire would be to get out of town as quickly as possible. And now Jesus is leaving them, and he is saying, I want you to stay here. And they don't know how long. He doesn't tell them how long. He said, you know, for a short time, it ends up being 10 days. Um, But they have to stay there. And what do they do? They devote themselves to prayer. And I think when we look at both in Scripture and both in the history of the church, anytime we see great moves of God, we always see preceding that a commitment or a devotion of his people to prayer. So why do we think when we don't devote our lives to prayer, and I'm so convicted by this right now, even as I say this, why do I think that I'm not seeing the power of the God in communicating the gospel to the lost, in fleshing that out, in living out the hope of the gospel that's in me and not despairing and fretting and living with anxiety and worry about different things that happen in my life? Why am I not surprised when I don't devote myself to prayer? We need to devote ourselves to prayer as these early Christians did. The Holy Spirit was coming in a unique way. And again, we'll look more at this. uh, But you have to think, and it's compared here to, to, to baptism. You have to think of what the early believers had experienced. The people of God in the Old Testament, when we read the Old Testament, we look at the supernatural events. And we think, oh, you know, if we saw those things today, then our faith would really be strengthened or unbelievers would come to faith. You know, if you saw the Red Sea parted, you know, if you saw uh, miraculous things like this, then that would really be powerful. But these, when you look at the scope of history, were not the daily norm. And the, 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 the filling of the Holy Spirit, it, it was not a, a, con, a continual filling that believers experienced, whether they were prophets or King David or whatever. Something was going to be different now. We were now going to have the Holy Spirit day in and day out. And this was something that they could not understand at the moment. They could look at the prophet Joel and hear his, his, his uh, prophecy that God's Spirit would be poured out on all of his people, but yet they couldn't comprehend it. So, in, in, in all of this, I want to finish this part by saying the kingdom of God's unified. It's not an afterthought. It's not a plan B. God wasn't fretting in heaven saying, oh, what am I going to do? Uh, Israel won't obey me. Okay, I'll send my son now, and, and this will be a different solution. No, this was the unfolding plan of redemption from eternity past. This was not plan B. This was not a fix-it. There is unity and, and, and continuity in God's kingdom, and his kingdom is 
a unified kingdom. One more little thing that I'll point out to demonstrate that. In these five verses, you see the Trinity, which is uh, a, a clear image of the unity of God. Three persons of the Godhead, one God. We see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Holy Spirit in all uh, five of the, in, in these five verses, rather. And we see the unity in their plan of redemption, that they came together as one God in planning from creation or from eternity past to, to put on the display of his glory the unfolding story of redemption. And that's what we have here now in the Gospels, moving forward into Acts. So the, the kingdom is a, a unified kingdom. The second thing I want us to see is the kingdom is, is a heavenly kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. And we've said this already, but I want us to unpack this a little bit because this is something that uh, the disciples, now about to be apostles, were still struggling with. And let's admit it, if we had our preferences, we would also want there to be an earthly kingdom, right? So uh, this is something that we can struggle with too. So the kingdom of God is a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. In verse 6, the disciples ask, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you would think that Jesus would, um, if he wasn't God, he would probably have a temper tantrum and say, oh my goodness, how many times do I have to say it? But he lovingly rebukes them and says the same thing that he's already said to them. Again, it's not for you to know the time. It's for the Father to know. And I just want to say at this, at this, this point that, you know, this is clear in Scripture, that no man knows the day, no man knows the hour. It's the Father's prerogative. Let's leave it there. So many Christians can get wrapped up in trying to figure out timing and order, and Scripture clearly teaches that we don't know when the return will be. So let's trust God that he does all things well and that he's good and that he knows the time. But the second thing he says, and it's interesting because he says, first of all, you don't know the time. It's not for you to know the time. The Father knows the time. But you are going to be my witnesses. Now, they're thinking earthly kingdom, right? probably spears and chariots and, you know, taking power and control the same way that Rome occupied them. Now the tables were going to be turned and they were now going to occupy the world. Jesus says, no, you know, my kingdom's not one of soldiers and spears. My kingdom's not one of crusaders and horses or any other kind of earthly weapon. My kingdom is over and above that. It's otherworldly. You guys are thinking way too small. Open your eyes wider. See with eyes of faith. My kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. But it's a kingdom that's invaded earth. It's a kingdom that is here. Jesus announced the coming of the kingdom. It is here. Now we wait for it to be consummated, for it to be completed at his return, but it's here now. His disciples just couldn't get that. But I would say that the reason that the church isn't about power, doesn't need to be about power, shouldn't be about power, is because our king is already all-powerful. We don't have to turn the church into something that seeks power. He's the omnipotent sovereign ruler. His is the kingdom as we pray. So the battles we fight, they're not earthly battles. They're spiritual, heavenly battles. Paul tells us this clearly in Ephesians, right? We're to be equipped with the whole armor of God to fight a heavenly battle, a battle that we cannot see. And somehow we prefer it to be earthly. 
Then he kind of gives them a strategy for how this witnessing was going to take place. It was going to start in Jerusalem. This is where they are. It's going to go to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And at this point, the uttermost parts of the world were going to be through Rome. Rome was the hub. Rome was the ruling capital of the, the world at this time. And so getting the gospel to Rome was key because then they were going to use these, this road system that in God's providence had been created and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And this is something that today, in looking back, we give thanks for because we're the recipients of that. We're the ends of the earth. Uh, we're the result of this, uh, this, this command. But we've also been given this command that we're to also take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus' ascension that we see in this passage not only meant the coming of the Holy Spirit, we saw that in John, but it also means that his return is closer each and every day. As he goes, uh, the clouds are significant. You know, Jesus could have uh, uh, just disappeared or faded away or, or, or whatever, but he ascends and he goes into clouds, the scripture tells us. Um, so the clouds, what do they point to? Well, God, as he revealed himself to his people, often revealed himself through some connection with clouds. If you think about it, when uh, he brought his people across uh, the Sinai Peninsula, it was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When he uh, uh, gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he was hidden by clouds. We see uh, clouds, uh, the Shekinah glory uh, with the temple, uh, and the temple and the tabernacle when God came to rest over the Holy of Holies. And then in the New Testament, we see the cloud in the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus and, and the uh, three, uh, three disciples were hidden in the clouds, right? So we see this God revealing himself, God, his glory, Shekinah glory. We see the Father's approval of his Son in the transfiguration. All of these things are represented and signifying as Jesus is enveloped in this cloud that his work on earth is done. And he's now going to heaven. But even as we read and quoted and, and, and read in unison rather today, that he is not left us, right? Because it's been better for us as to our advantage that he sent his spirit to us. We're not left alone. So the kingdom of God is unified. It's singular in mission and purpose. The kingdom of God is heavenly. It's not limited to earthly power or material things. And lastly, the kingdom of God is an unstoppable kingdom. The kingdom of God is an unstoppable kingdom. Verses 12 to the end. This longer passage is describing how Matthias was selected to replace Judas Iscariot. We don't have time to unpack everything. But here's the big picture that I want us to see. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his kingdom tasks. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his kingdom tasks. That ought to encourage us today. For those of us in this room who are ordinary, uh, I being one, God uses ordinary people to accomplish his kingdom tasks. And he is not limited to or limited by us being ordinary people. His kingdom is unstoppable. This should give us not only courage, but this should give us great freedom to know that he will, his, his, his effort will not be stopped or thwarted by anything that we do. We see this in the life of Judas. I mean, what the disciples must have thought that night when Judas walked up, leading the army, and kissed their, who, who was going to be their savior, their leader, betraying him, turning him over. What did they think? Judas blew it all. Judas ruined everything. And, you know, sometimes we look at things from an earthly perspective, and frankly, sometimes it feels that way. Certain leaders or certain uh, people in our lives or whatever do things that are sinful and that are wrong, and we think it's ruined everything. 
But we have to come back to hope in the one who sits on the throne, knowing that he rules and that he reigns and that his kingdom is unstoppable. Judas's sins didn't thwart the plans of God. In fact, Luke tells us, they fulfilled prophecy written hundreds of years ago, spoken through the mouth of David. Multiple prophecies. So God uses everything to carry out his plans. He is so uh, amazing and powerful that he can use even our sins to accomplish his plan. Get your mind around that. I can't. But that this is what we see here in this passage. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. We see the disciples come back from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives right next to Jerusalem. If you've ever visited there, you know you have this incredible view of the city of Jerusalem, and it's a short walk, a Sabbath day walk, Luke says, over. And they go back into this upper room. You know, it doesn't say they're hiding in there, but I kind of get the impression that they were real happy to be in this upper room, away from the street view. Nobody probably knew they're up there, kind of hidden away because of fear. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me if we found that out. All the, all the disciples are there. The women are there. The mother of Jesus and his brothers, again, reminding us God uses ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things through his spirit, the power of his spirit. And we, we've highlighted this already, but I mention it again. What were they doing? They were devoting themselves to prayer. They were giving their lives to prayer. Sometimes we treat prayer as a last resort. Um, what we do, at the, you know, when everything else fails, then we pray. We need to realize that it's, it's not the power of our prayers or how well we pray or what we say or how well we say it or how eloquent we are. The power lies in the one to whom we pray. And this is what makes devoting a lie, your life to prayer so powerful and so important. And what a ministry that you can have through prayer. If you can't uh, do anything else, you can pray. And a powerful ministry that is. And of course, we see this precede the coming of the Holy Spirit, this devoting of themselves to prayer. In the remaining verses of the chapter, we see this uh, narrative of how Matthias is selected. There's, there's a lot to, to consider here, but we're just going to look at one particular thing. And that is, why was it necessary to replace Judas? Why did Matthias need to be selected? And I think it's interesting what, what most scholars uh, that I've uh, studied through this and looked at this, what most seem to believe, uh, most scholars believe that it was in order to have a faithful testimony before the Jewish people. And you think about this. The people of God are identified up to this point with a nation, with an eth- ethnic group in a sense, an ethnic group and a nation. In other words, if you're in, you're in. And if, if you're not in, it's really difficult to get in. There's lots of steps to get in. And so it's almost uh, created for the Jewish people a little bit of a class system. And they think of themselves a little bit more special at this time in history. And, of course, we know that Christ's death and what happened in that, uh, was a, there was a tearing down of this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. So everything was changing, right? And so for the Jewish people the number 12 was significant. We see this throughout Scripture. We know this in studying Jewish history. The number 12 was significant. So having a complete 12, which was a number of completeness, uh, having a complete 12 apostles, disciples, apostles, uh, was significant for the Jewish people to see that this was the faithful remnant of Israel. You know, Jewish leaders were always looking for the coming Messiah. When is he going to come? What is he going to look like? What's he going to do? Their tendency was to look more toward an earthly leader 
um, but they were always looking. And with that, they knew that the true Messiah would be followed by the true remnant, the people of God. So there was this number 12 that was significant. Um, We see the 12 loaves of unleavened bread in the tabernacle later in the temple that the priests would continually bake and replace. We know there were 12 sons of Jacob, of Israel, uh, 12 tribes of Israel subsequently. Um, The worship was was driven around this. The the, the priest wore the, the breastplate with the 12 stones, right? So we see this again and again. We even look forward in the New Testament in Revelation, and there's imagery of 12, uh, 12 thrones in heaven, the 12 stars in the crown, the 12 gates in the new city. Uh, we see this over and over, this number of completeness, this number of authority in Jewish understanding. But I want us to be careful in that. The, the key to kingdom living is not looking for dozens. Numbers 12, okay? Don't, don't, let's not attach a superstition that somehow if we just look for things in 12s, we'll find the, the, the magic key to living in the kingdom. No, For the Jews in this period, seeing a complete apostleship of 12 men was important, and God granted them this by his mercy in Matthias. What's important to see is that God uses things that we as infinite or finite creatures can relate to and understand to teach us and show us powerful things. So Matthias' selection was really about an act of mercy of God. Because guess what? We don't ever hear anything else about Matthias. This is the one time he's mentioned. So thank God that he uses things sometimes that we would look at as trivial or silly, but he acknowledges our finiteness, our weakness, to help us to understand. And I think for us in, in this day and age, there's nothing clearer than that or, or, or clearer example of that than when we come to the table. That God uses these things to instruct our hearts, to, to nourish us spiritually of deep spiritual things. So the big picture here is although God chooses to use weak, fallible, ordinary vessels like you and me, like Peter, like Matthias, there is nothing that we can do to mess up the kingdom. That should give us some some real comfort, some real freedom in what we're doing. Um, You and I should be emboldened. We should be filled with courage to know that we can serve God freely that nothing that we can do can thwart his plans. This doesn't mean that we live frivolously, that we don't care about sin. No, we fight sin. We, we wrestle against evil. We resist Satan. We, we fight the spiritual battles that we've been called to fight. But we don't live in worry and anxiety. And if you're carrying a burden of something that you've done in your life, and you are a child of God, you need to know that Christ in his work on the cross took care of your sins and that he can use you as a powerful instrument in his kingdom that nothing can thwart his plan. Serve him in faith. Serve him with joy knowing that he reigns and that his kingdom is unstoppable. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Isaiah 46, God speaks, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God's kingdom is unstoppable. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we go out, that we will recognize that we're a part of a kingdom that's 
unified, that's heavenly, and that's unstoppable. And that you, because of your sovereign might and power, rule and reign, and you use us who were ordinary, feeble, frail people. We still struggle with sin, and yet you choose to use us. And nothing can thwart your plans. May we go and be empowered by that to live out the hope that we have, to be conduits of your grace to our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends and our family, to those that you would put in our path, that your name would be made great here in this area, Lord, and to the uttermost parts of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.